what keeps you up at night? What are the things that cause you to feel stressed? Are, are there recurring fears that you experience? Are there nagging worries that isolate you in some way? What's in the future, real or imagined, that you dread in some way? If you said nothing, none of that, no to all of that, then I need you to listen real close because we're going to need you to minister to the rest of us who found something in that list that concerns us, that keeps us up. Anxiety disorders, phobias, PTSD, panic attacks, social anxiety, host of other ailments are considered the most common form of mental disorder in the country. One in every five adults is said to experience some form of anxiety disorder over the course of a year. Anxiety is real. One writer taking the, the biblical language that's used for anxiety defines it simply as distracting cares. Things that are sometimes legitimate concerns, cares, but they become consuming. They begin to distract us. They begin to tear at our emotions and affect our thinking. We know that we're anxious when the sermon title or the pastor's mere mention of the word anxiety triggers thoughts of a conflict that we're dealing with, of a relationship that needs mending, of a health issue we're facing, of a bill that we don't know how to pay, of a, of a deadline that seems suffocating. And, and almost universally, our, our temptation when it comes to the biblical teaching on anxiety is to respond, at least internally, with, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. I, I know what you're going to say. I know what scripture says. And I hate this anxiety. And I'm trapped by it. And I've tried everything. But I'm really not ready to hear that Jesus said, do not be anxious. But he did. It's his command here in Matthew chapter 6. That's where we are this morning. And we're moving through the second half of the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to do a couple of things. You got it in the notes. Hopefully you got a copy of the notes. We're going to look at the command itself, what, what he means by the command, sort of how he develops the command and helps us to understand it. A couple of illustrations. That, uh, first of all, then the basis for the command. We'll look back to what, what supports the command. A couple of illustrations that support the command. And then finally, an incentive that Jesus gives to obey the command. So let me read, starting in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. He begins, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore... Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Let's start with the command. It's simple. Do not be anxious about your life. We, we need to be clear. There are instances in Scripture where there are scenes of great concern, where there's even the use of the word for anxiety, and it's not sinful. Proverbs 22.3 says a wise man sees danger and he flees it. He knows to run from it. 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul uses this same Greek word for anxiety when he speaks of the daily pressures on me of my anxiety for all the churches, my, my deep concern for all the churches. And there's the scene in Luke 22, the incredible physical agony that Jesus endures on the night before his crucifixion. So this command is not some denial of how God created us as people with the capacity to have fear, as people with adrenaline to respond to situations to help us avoid danger. So so what does he mean when he says, do not be anxious about your life? I, I, I think there's three insights in the passage, three sort of categories I want to give us to to think about when he's saying this, that Jesus is clearly forbidding. First, he says, don't be anxious about what you will eat or drink or wear. And so he has material security in mind. You'll remember that Jesus had just got done saying, you can't serve God and money. You can't be consumed with materialism and yet be glorifying God in worship. The two are mutually exclusive. So what about the person in his audience who says, but Rabbi, you don't understand. I'm not worried about getting rich. I'm not struggling with materialism. I just don't know where the next meal comes from for my family. I I just don't know how how we're gonna get through. The harvest has not been good at all, and I I don't know how we're gonna get through this winter. Rabbi, you, you don't understand. I don't know how I'm gonna make my next car payment or my next rent payment or my next student loan payment or whatever that is. It's that simple. And Jesus responds with this. Do not be anxious about these things. Do not be filled with distracting cares about these things. Now we'll get to the the why, the basis and the incentive here shortly, but that's, that's the first thing. He's dealing with material security. Should not consume us. Second thing, verse 27, another insight he gives. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So what about health issues? What what if I've been diagnosed with something bad? What if the prognosis is not good? What if I'm fearful concerning health issues? There's got to be some room to worry about length of life, right? And Jesus says, no. What he describes here is is essentially picturing life as a path. You can picture your life as a a course that's been charted and appointed by God, and the distance is fixed. And what he says is, anxiety will not lengthen it. You and I cannot change the distance measured out by our Creator. That path has been established. Psalm 139, 16, God established for my life, the the days of my life before I was formed in my mother's womb. 
And that's his point here. If you, if you see life as this course, like if you're at a park somewhere and it says that the, the jogging trail is 1.6 miles, you can't, you can't fix that. It's 1.6 and that's what it is. And that's what he's saying here. Who by worrying can lengthen that course in some way? That's not meant to promote hopeless fatalism. Ecclesiastes tells us exactly the opposite. Live each day as a gift. It's, it's God's gracious kindness to you. Eat and drink and enjoy and be glad for what God has given you and experience life that the Almighty has provided for you. And don't be anxious about how much or how little you think is to come. And the third insight He's dealt with material security, health issues. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Material security, health issues, and matters of the future. And here's where I would add real or imagined. Our conception of what could happen, our what ifs. You note the last words of Jesus on this topic there in verse 34 are clear. There will be troubles in life. The, 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 the takeaway from this message, from this passage, should not be that Jesus is somehow saying, don't worry, it's all good, there's no troubles. He's not saying that. In fact, he says at the very end, each day has enough trials of its own. Wickedness is real. Hardships will come. There will be suffering. But what he's commanding against is being anxious over tomorrow's potential crises. The the what ifs and the what abouts that tend to drive us nuts and keep us awake at night. That cause us to, to worry about where this could go and what this could lead to. What Jesus is saying is, yes, tomorrow is as likely to have troubles as today, but worrying about it will not change the future. Stay focused on today, what the Lord has given you to do today, the tasks that are before you. Think on what is true in this moment and obey him and trust him for grace to be sufficient in this day. Will I get through this class? Will our contract be renewed? Will my health hold out? Will my child be safe? Will the surgery be a success? We're not God. We're not sovereign. We don't have the ability to control that or manipulate that. And so to get distracted by the perceived cares of tomorrow or next week or next month is to act as if somehow my worry can improve the future. Somehow me just losing sleep over this can change it. But it's a future that belongs to the same God who promises sufficient grace for each day. He will provide and care for us in that moment. And we can rest in that. So there's the command. Second piece here is the the whole basis for this command. It's that first word that Jesus begins this section with. Therefore, verse 25, it's in the Greek, it's diatuta. It's, it's, It's basically functioning like an arrow that points up. Therefore, or for this reason, uh, another way of saying is on, on account of this, This is Jesus saying, on account of all that I've just said, have you been paying attention to what I've just been teaching? Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. So think about this. What's Jesus been saying? Not just the immediately preceding context. That's valuable and important. But think all the way back. Chapter 6, verse 1, when he starts this 
this sort of contrast between the Father in heaven and sort of earthly activities. The, 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 in fact, you could go back to the very theme of the sermon, back from the beginning, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of what? Kingdom of heaven. He's, he sort of established the, the importance of heaven from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he keeps using it to contrast for us between heaven and earth. Jesus reminds his hearers, your father is in heaven. Your reward is in heaven. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then we get to chapter 6, and he begins to talk about particular religious rituals that men do. Public prayer and fasting. um, The the, the sort of uh, things that they do in front of others. Giving. And he says, a lot of what you see... They're simply doing for for what they get here on earth. They're simply doing to be seen by others and they get their reward here in the moment here on earth. They do their rituals and that's their reward. But Jesus said, you must be different. Give, pray, and fast in secret, he says, because what's in your mind is your father who is in heaven, who will reward you. Already he's saying, if you're... If you're settling for what's here, then you're losing sight of what's there and, and what your Father in heaven has for you and how he will reward you. And, and In fact, we saw it a few weeks ago in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, Jesus taught us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is where? It, where? I, I'm just making it because it's cold. I, wanna, I want you to participate a little bit. So in heaven, Right. If we're focusing on treasure, don't let it be the earthly kind that rots and decays and is stolen, but store up treasures where? In heaven. There we go. So he's, he's clearly been orienting us towards saying there's more. This is not all there is. You're caught up in earthly kingdoms and earthly rewards. And all throughout the sermon, there is this directional sort of focus that says don't get caught up with life on earth because it's fleeting. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) The treasures on earth are decaying. The approval of man is fickle. All that is here on earth is passing, just like where Jesus will end this sermon when he speaks of the house that is built on sand and that is gone and blown away. Therefore, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus, if by grace you have been saved, if you are redeemed and you belong to his kingdom, then think differently. The kingdom of heaven should occupy our attention. That that forward focus of what he wants to do should govern even as how we live moment by moment. Believers in Jesus Christ need to be reminded that the, the short 20 years or 40 or 60 or 80 or so that we get in this life are important, but they are not all important. They are a stewardship to us. They've been trusted to us and we are, we're called to use them well and to love God and love neighbor and to glorify him. Our days on earth matter, but we spend them with the recognition that these are just a vapor. This time is passing. What am I going to get nailed with next? I'm thinking here. Don't be anxious. There you go. 
I shouldn't even be thinking about that. It's, it's that perspective that in the moment we are to be living for eternity that the King's Manifesto keeps directing us toward. Keep saying, you're, you're here for something more than this. The kingdom of heaven should not just be some glorious future home. It should be where we, even by faith today, rest and dwell and trust in our Savior. Thank you, brother. And it's that perspective that's the background and the basis to the command in verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life. Makes very little sense and is impossible to grasp if we don't get what Jesus has already been saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You are followers of mine. You belong to my kingdom. Live for the glory of what lies before you. Be salt and light so that other people will see your good works and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Obey God's word and teach it to others, he told us back in chapter 5. For those who do will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When he gives warnings about anger and lust, his warnings go to hell, that those who are enslaved to these things, who are not set free from these things, better to, to deal with them radically than to be cast into hell. Over and over, Jesus has eternity in view because his is the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we are called to live for, the glory of our heavenly Father. Think about how much of your worry is related to the here and now. Will, will I have enough? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's next for my kids? Will they have enough? When Jesus is challenging us to wonder, how am I living in light of his kingdom? Of what lies before? How am I equipping my children to live for an eternal kingdom? To glorify God. All right, we'll come back to this with the last point. Uh, let's just hit the illustrations. Two illustrations Jesus gives to support this command. Birds of the air, lilies of the field. At home we have hummingbird feeders. We started with one hummingbird feeder. And we had the hummingbird wars outside our window. We had one, one hummingbird who determined that this was his feeder. Life and death revolved around this feeder, and he was willing to combat anyone that came near his feeder. And so he would dive bomb every time another hummingbird came around. So we set up another hummingbird feeder about 40 feet away, and then a third one on the other side of the house and figured at least we'd give the other hummingbirds a chance. And, and that one hummingbird is still like shooting, flying from place to place and over the house and doing everything he can now to guard every hummingbird feeder. And, and in my mind, I'm watching this out the window of the dining room and I'm thinking, you ingrate. I bought that feeder. I poured that nectar in there. And, and you don't even care. You didn't even work for this. And, and here you are hassling all the others. I, I don't think he was interested in my philosophy on this or cared how I was reflecting. Jesus' point here, though, is that the birds don't plant seeds, they don't grow crops, they don't harvest them, they don't store them in the barn, they don't do all the ordinary work that, that the agrarian culture in that day did, and yet they still eat. 
Now listen, there's a drawback to the bird feeder illustration because Jesus is not saying that God just takes a pile of food and puts it down and says, help yourself. The birds still have to scratch and find that. They they have to pull up the worms and find the insects and, and they have to get the food, but God has given them the means and his creation has provided the supply so that he feeds them, he provides for them. And Jesus says, aren't you so much more valuable than the birds? Aren't you made in the very image of your creator and his likeness? You you are the pinnacle of God's creative work. You are the one to whom dominion has been given over creation. Jesus says you are so much more valuable. And if he has provided the means and the supply for the birds to be fed, how much more will he care for you? He says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the wildflowers. They are stunning in their beauty. They are just spectacular to behold. If the infinite and omnipotent God of the universe cares enough to majestically adorn simple flowers so that we look on a field and go, that's amazing. How much more does he care about you and I? How much more is he set on protecting us and providing for us? Again, it's it's Jesus reminding us that God provides, but also that he calls us to depend on him. That's why the prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. It is a reliance on the sustaining power of our God to provide for our needs. To be anxious about material needs or health issues or tomorrow's concerns is ultimately to call into question the gracious care and loving provision of our creator. To begin to to doubt those things and to be anxious about those things, if If we believe as we're told, as we emphasize every Sunday morning when we come to that part of the service when we think about giving and we say it over and over again, it is God's. He has been generous to bless us. It is a gift from his hand and we are merely giving back if we believe that and yet we get wrapped up and distracted from worshiping him because we are consumed by these things then we are raising doubts about whether the creator and sustainer of the universe can actually be trusted? Do we really think that he knows what they are and that he'll provide? I, I, I know what he says, but I need more proof because I'm, I'm not sure if his care or provision will be enough, and so I, I worry and, I, and I, I try to add some more to cover myself. Now, we don't say it that way. We wouldn't dare quite verbalize it in exactly that language. We, we know we shouldn't. But when our anxiety becomes distracting and consuming and, and self-focused, it registers a subtle message that we're just not entirely sure that God really knows where we're at in this circumstance and will provide sufficiently for it. I said you had to start. One more thing I want us to see in this passage, and it's this incentive that Jesus gives. If you look back again at verse 25, he asks a question. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's the command, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more, plenteous is another way of saying it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Food and clothing are important. We need food to live. Days like today remind us of the importance of layers of clothing and that we need protection from the elements, some, some more protected than others. 
out there, staying warm. So food and clothing are important. But Jesus also states the obvious in the form of a rhetorical question. For as important as food and clothing are, he says, isn't there more than that? Isn't there more to our existence than food and clothing, than than basic provisions for the body? Of course there is. So the question that he asks, I think he answers later on down in verses 32 and 33. Uh, Just look down. Let Let me actually pick up in 31 and just follow along with me. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or or drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's made the contrast. There are those who go through life whose primary ambition is about stuff, material security. They are consumed by the things of this world and having the the provisions that they need and any perceived lack is a cause for anxiety. These are likely the same people that Pastor Stewart preached about last week from verse 19 who in the competition between God and stuff are more concerned about the stuff here on earth. They are mastered by that stuff. And when Jesus says the unbelievers seek after these things, he's talking about the unbelieving world. Those who are not interested in the kingdom of heaven, their preoccupation is with, how do I care for myself? How do I provide? How do I secure? How do I store up enough for myself? But there's a connection there between the anxiety in verse 31 and the the seeking, the pursuit in verse 32. What they are ambitious for is what distracts them. What the priority is that they are after becomes the distracting care that consumes them, and that's what makes them anxious. And that's why verse 33 starts with, but. But what you are ambitious for, what you are called to seek, what you are to make your ambition is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In this whole section, verses 25 to 34, there are just two present tense imperative verbs, two clear ongoing commands for the believer. One's negative, one's positive. The negative is the one in verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life. The positive, the antidote to that is verse 33, but be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't be anxious Don't make your ambition stuff on earth because that will provide the distracting cares that will make you anxious, but rather you make your ambition the kingdom of heaven and the pursuit of the things of God. That is what he calls us to. Jesus talked so much about the kingdom of heaven, that theme of heaven, we've talked about it already, has been all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Here he speaks of the kingdom of God. This is only the, the first time in the Sermon on the Mount and one of only five places in Matthew that he speaks of the kingdom of God instead of kingdom of heaven. He's directionally focused us toward eternity and toward heaven, but he's also said now by the kingdom of God that in the middle of this life, in the midst of the trials and the struggles and living in a fallen and broken world, we are to be devoted to the rule of God. It is the kingdom of God. It is his righteousness that we are to be pursuing. Righteous obedience to the king. That that verb for seek is 
search or investigate. So when he says seek first, Gentiles are seeking after these things. You seek first. It's, it's the idea it was used in, in secular Greek writing of a court officer who investigated the details of a case. So it's not just a run after something. It is an intent sort of focus on I want to understand this. I want to know this. I want to understand the kingdom of God and what it means to walk after him. And, and I want to pursue that with my being. It is pouring yourself into examining and learning his ways. Be clear here, just a quick moment for clarity because we've said this several times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about righteousness, remember going all the way back to your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. There's, there's two ways to think of righteousness that, that Jesus can be referring to. One is the position of righteousness. That's, that's the position of all who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you have come to the place of trusting in Jesus as your Savior, turning from your sin, you receive from God as a gift the righteousness of Christ That is a legal standing. We call it justification. You have a right standing before God so that you now as a sinner stand before the holy God of the universe, not not facing eternal wrath or condemnation because of the righteousness of Christ that is a gift. But the righteousness that he's so often talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is now what we do as citizens of the kingdom. It is living rightly. It is the conduct that flows from that position. It is the difference that the righteousness of Christ makes. And here's the positive antidote to respond to the anxiety that always looms over us and tempts us. It is to concentrate on learning and knowing and following and beholding and enjoying the glorious ways of God and His righteousness, seeing what it is that He has called us to and living in a way that befits membership in His kingdom. And he's kind enough to add incentive to that. Because what he says is when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, when you you make it your ambition to be on an unending quest to please the king first, he says instead of being consumed by material issues and length of life issues and tomorrow issues, real or imagined, he says he will add all these things to you. He will provide. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The most immediate explanation of what that is is what he just got done saying in the context concerning the Gentiles who are anxious about food and clothes and drink. Jesus is is saying there's that. There's his material provision, but he's already emphasized that through the the birds and the, and the, the wildflowers. I want to suggest to you that that what he's saying in verse 33 is is at least to some degree an answer to his question of verse 25. Is not life more than food and clothing? Yes, in following Christ, there there is the gracious provision of God for material needs, for understanding the necessities that we have before us and for providing. It would be wrong to to leave this passage and not point out by way of application that one of the means by which he does that is the body of Christ. That that this, this providing of food and clothing and drink that 
part of the way that Jesus does that is through brothers and sisters in Christ, ministering to and showing benevolence and kindness to one another. That there are situations where there are brothers and sisters in Christ who face hunger and and who face poverty. And we are called as brothers and sisters to whom he has provided to be good stewards and to care for them and to minister to them. Jesus is saying it's not just food and clothing. Jesus supplies the necessities, but so much more. Peace in your heart in the midst of turmoil. Truth that speaks to my confusion. Hope of the eternal presence of my king. A promise that he will wipe away every tear. That I will be with him without temptation. That I will experience what it is to to be in the presence of his holiness with deep and lasting joy. All this will be added unto you. It's not just the necessities. There is relief for our anxiety. We know that our God is king, and there's no circumstances in our lives that can escape his sovereign rule. Nothing that happens to you is somehow a moment of chaos in God's plan. It's not outside of what he has designed. Jesus is king, and if you are trusting in him, if this morning you are believing that Jesus Christ died for you and rose again, and that he paid the price for your sins, then you belong to his kingdom, and he is a good king. He knows perfectly what is best for you and I, and that's why he is able to say to us, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about the timing how long it'll be, about what you think is going to happen in November. Be earnestly seeking my Father's kingdom. Walk in the, the right conduct that he has called you to walk, and I will provide for you. All of these things will be added unto you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truths in Scripture that show us again and again your provision for your people, your care for body and soul, your great love for those who have been made in your image and redeemed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for when our worry, our fear, our distress calls your provision into question casts doubt on whether we believe that you are really being good in a situation. Forgive us that we have gone there in our minds and allowed worry to control our emotions. We pray, Father, that your spirit would restore in us peace. Father, I'm convinced there are brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning who are walking in valleys now, who are walking through difficult times who are realistically looking at today or tomorrow and and, and have questions about what will happen. I pray, Lord, that, that your spirit would minister peace and comfort and assurance from your word, that you know their needs, that you will provide for them, that your grace will be sufficient in the moment. Lord, if there's anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, 
who would face death, uncertain of what would happen. I pray that this day your spirit would draw them to yourself, that you would draw them to see that this great Savior who speaks in the Sermon on the Mount and declares his kingdom to be an everlasting one truly longs to save them, truly longs to take his righteousness and his sinless perfection, having sacrificed himself on the cross now and giving of his righteousness to all who will come to him and believe in him, who will turn from their sin and trust in him. Father, help us as a church. Help us to minister to the needs of brothers and sisters. Help us to know that the world around us is caught up in anxiety and and, and give us opportunities to minister to physical needs, to care for them, but also to proclaim Christ and give them hope. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for these promises, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.